And a very good evening to all you Mets team folks. This is the Converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Mets team podcast. We are so thankful uh, that you have joined us tonight. And uh, without further ado, uh, we have a very special guest on. But first, I'm going to go around the horn to my partners in crime, and I'll start with Mike LaColon in Brooklyn. How you doing, Mike? What's going on here? Ravaged with uh, allergies. I'm going to try not to let my face get in the way, but otherwise everything's great. Well, uh, so far you sound crystal clear for sure, Mike. And uh, a little north of him in Connecticut is Rich Sparago. How are you doing tonight, Connecticut? Uh, how are you doing tonight, Rich? <laughs> uh, doing well. I'm in the same boat as Mike. Uh, you know, the, the allergies are just brutal. The pollen count is off the charts, but uh, – and I wish that could be counterbalanced by some good Mets goings on, but that's not the case. But all, overall, I can't complain. Right, exactly. I, I hear what you mean. It's uh, we we will complain, but, but uh, it's it's kind of part of the fun. Uh, for better or worse, we love talking about Mets, and we also love talking about Mets history and reviewing Mets history uh, through this this gentleman. This. Uh, a fantastic feed he's got. John Struble, who operates Mets Rewind on Twitter and uh, his webpage. And, and John, I just have to say, it is one of the, the things I look forward to on Twitter every day is seeing what you have to, to say on Mets Rewind for the day. Well, thanks so much, Sam. That's uh, that's the joy of doing it when you can bring back some memories about the Mets. And, uh, you know, that's... Um, it's one of my uh, favorite things to do during the day is, uh, you know, throw some different topics and players and games and Mets history out on that feed and, and letting the fans chime in where they were, what they thought of a player. Um, sometimes it goes south <laughs> when you talk about the Bobby Bonillas of the world, but uh, um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun to do. And thanks so much for having me on the show. I love the podcast. Well, thank you very much, and it's funny that you mentioned Bobby Bonilla because we will be bringing him up, I believe, at some mm. point in the near future when we're talking about episode 25 and correlating to uniform numbers. But that is not until the tail end of the show, so that's a little tease for, for all of you who are looking forward to talking about Bobby Bonilla. Uh, but anyway, John, what we always like to do the first time somebody – Uh, joins us on the podcast is kind of give us a little background not only of of your own personal life but of course of your baseball history yeah i uh i grew up a mets fan in upstate new york in in the albany area so uh from the time i was about seven years old um i was a mets fan i can remember my first mets baseball card being bud harrelson and uh that was 1972 and um, so I grew up a Mets fan. I, I grew up through some real uh, tough times in the late 70s. And then by the 80s, of course, the championship years. And then we waned a little bit again in the 90s and came back. And it's been a roller coaster ride. But, uh, I, yeah, I've loved this team for more than four decades. That, um, that history and that desire and that passion for the New York Mets has really uh, – drove me into my media career, which I spent 20 years as a morning radio show host, a program director, and a sports uh, talk show host. And then I worked in minor league baseball for uh, the now defunct Glens Falls Tigers in upstate New York. At the time, 
that was 1987 in my college days, and they had guys like uh, John Smoltz pitching for them before he got traded for the Braves. So I was able to see some great minor league ball players. And then I moved to Charleston, and I joined the River Dogs, which is a Class A affiliate now of the Yankees. At the time, it was the Tampa Bay Rays. So, uh, yeah, started in PR and stats first, then went on to be a public address announcer for the ballpark. And then I studied journalism for years and, and really uh, have done a lot of freelance writing in print. And that's a very narrow industry now, as most of you know. But uh, over the last 10, 12 years, really, uh, all my writing has been about Mets and Mets history and uh, some current Met material as well. So it's been a blast and it's been a great run. I, and I just have to say that I love Charleston, South Carolina. I've only been there once for an hour, and it was so memorable just to quickly walk around, quickly drive around. Uh, so that's that's really excellent that you get to take that city in on a daily basis. And you know, John, I, it's funny that we didn't mention we didn't uh, go into this prior to, but I, you know, I'm right now I'm on location on the New York State Thruway, having just left Exit 21. So where around the Albany region? Are you? Uh, my family has a house. My family has a house up uh, near Catskill in, in uh, Leeds, New York. Yeah, I was just through that way, and unfortunately, uh, on some family business, my mom passed away about a week and a half ago. But I grew up outside of Albany in a little city called Mechanicville, New York. Which, you know, we could put the whole graduating class on the front of a T-shirt and have it printed. It really. That was really something that happened. And, uh, yeah, so I was just maybe 10, 12 miles outside of Saratoga Springs where the Traverse Stakes are and maybe 30 minutes outside of Glens Falls where minor league baseball was for me. So, yeah, that, that whole area right there in the upstate of New York and, you know, not far from the Catskills right where um, you are at this time is where I grew up. That was my stomping grounds as a kid. That's fantastic, and it is it is certainly a beautiful country, but man, oh man, is New York State something to see. It's really beautiful, and that's cool that we could come together on that. And, and of course, my condolences on uh, you losing your mother. Uh, absolutely, uh, it, it's heartbreaking, and you know I can certainly relate within the last year in terms of losing a parent. So I, I hope that you uh, heal up as you know, as much as possible, even though it, the grief will always stick with you. So, so my condolences to you. Yeah. Thanks so much. My mama was, uh, she actually took me to my first Mets game and obviously was, um, a huge influence, uh, for me in baseball, uh, growing up, taking me to little league and all that stuff. So the memories are great. My mom lived a great life, 89 years. And, uh, you know, the body eventually takes its toll on you. So, uh, but she's been a Mets fan since day one, since 1962. So, um, you know, my hope is uh, that they win a World Series for her very soon. And and hopefully that will be this year. Although, you know, as we'll get into it, it is uh, a little little rough patches right now. Uh, before before we get into the 2019 New York Mets, I'm going to go around the horn, starting with Mike. If uh, you have anything you'd like to ask, John. Well, I, I'd only ask, John, again, sorry for your loss. Uh, you know, sure. I'm in the process of taking care of my mom. So, uh, you know, this is mm-hmm. our circle of life that we all have to live. 
Uh, that and I, you know, you, you say uh, your mother was a great influence, and I have to agree. I have to jump on that. My mom was also uh, the influence in my life when it comes to baseball and her side of the family. That's definitely where I get my passion from baseball from. Fantastic. Go ahead, Sam. Oh, sure. Absolutely. And uh, Rich, go ahead. Yeah, John, I, I, I'll i say it as well. Uh, you know, my condolences as well on, on the loss of your mom. And, and I guess my um, my question for you would be, you know, you, you have a very uh, storied background in the game. What's it like being a public address announcer? I mean, I have to ask that question because as you were talking, I was, you know, thinking about it and, and – what are those responsibilities? Like, like, how do you prepare for a game and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Rich. And it, it was a lot of fun doing it because I had full autonomy when I did it because I worked for, um, in this name in baseball history may sound very familiar to you, a guy named Mike Veck, who was uh, with the Chicago White Sox in the late 70s, if you remember, Disco Demolition. Sure. Him and his father, yeah, he and his father, <laughs> they were both part of that, and Mike was a big part of that, and uh, so he owns the Charleston River Dogs, and uh, along with Bill Murray and a couple other investors, so when they hired me on in 1998, I was doing a morning radio show, and they said, we basically want you to take that morning radio show and bring it to the ballpark, and we want you to have fun. We want you to get involved with the fans. So, you know, that's what I did. And in a lot of ways, it's not like what um, Colin Cosell does now or uh, any of the other major league broadcasters in the, the sense that I could get out and mingle with fans with a headset on or with a wireless microphone and have some fun with them between half innings. But in preparation for that, yeah, you do get in a couple hours early and, um, even even at the minor league level, players would come up to me and say, I want this to be my walk-up music. I want that to be my walk-up music. I remember in my early days, my I think it was my second year as PA announcer, this young guy comes up to me. He's got huge feet. And I'm like, who is this guy? And he walks up and he goes, hi, my name's Josh Hamilton. He goes, I want this to be my walk-up song. This is before he ever had any – any drug issues or any of that stuff. He was an 18 year old kid, zero tattoos on his body and he could hit like crazy. And I said, wow, this guy's going to be a major league ball player. And then he had some injuries and injuries led to um, some drug addiction, but he did eventually make it into the major leagues. And I think probably you all remember his all-star um, performance in the home run derby, which was just lights out that one year. So I grew up, you know, in those years, it was great doing that because I got to see him and Carl Crawford was playing center field at the time and Aubrey Huff. And, you know, they had a roster of some really good young players coming through Tampa Bay system. So that was a, a ton of fun to do. And I still hold the record here in Charleston as being the only public address announcer in Charleston baseball history to be kicked out of a ballpark by an umpire. So Not for what? You know, <laughs> he was, uh, he called what I thought was a ball, a strike. And, um, I played a clip from, um, from, uh, oh, what's the movie with all the girls and Tom Hanks in it. 
a league of their oh, own. Major uh, league of their own, right? League of their own. And so I played a clip of that, and uh, and then he turned around and he kind of like ran his hand over his throat, like cut it out. I was like, okay, next pitch, same thing. It looked like a, a ball off the plate. And uh, again, I played uh, the clip, and he turned around and he told me to cut it out. And I right after he told me to cut it out, I played the clip. There's no crying in baseball. And he turned around, stopped the game, took his mask off, walked back to the screen, and said, he's out of here. So the GM had to come up and get me out of the booth, walk me through the ballpark, and take me out of there before they would continue the game. I got a standing ovation from the crowd, but <laughs> it was a lot of fun to do. So, yeah, that, that's the kind of shenanigans you get involved in when you're in Class A baseball. But uh, it's a lot of fun to do. If you ever get a chance, if somebody ever invites you into the booth or says, hey, come on in and do some PA announcing, take advantage of it and just have fun with it. It's a great time. It was Angel Hernandez, wasn't it? It was Angel Hernandez, wasn't it? No, (laughs) it probably could have been, you know? It probably could have been. Um, If anyone could miss multiple calls in a row, it certainly is Angel Hernandez, yeah. Miss multiple calls in a row and then run the PA announcer in a minor league game out of the ballpark. Uh, (laughs) It's just like apparently this whole umpire thing is up and down the, the... uh, the professional uh, circuit. So, but that that that's really interesting, and I could I could see also how much more uh, interaction there would be in uh, minor league sports than there would be in in major league sports, of course, with the PA announcing. It, it's um, uh, pretty fascinating listening to you talk about it. So I thank you for that. Thank you for that, John. And uh, but without further ado, let's carry on over to the 2019. New York Mets, uh, or, or whatever we can uh, handle regarding the, these guys. And, and I'll start with you, John, and let, let's get right to it. Let's do some broad strokes here. Uh, you know, we've had a little bit, I think it's close to 25% of the, the season, and we've had an entire off season of BBW, Brody Von Wagenen, to assess and the job that he's done so far. So, what what is your initial grade right now for for what Brody is doing in his first go round as a general manager? Well, I would give Brody, you know, I I give him a hard time on my personal feed, or at least it comes across as that. And in my reflection of Brody is, I don't think it's a Brody Van Wagen in his issue as much as it is a leadership issue in the front office, and that's something as Met fans that we need to. Um, get used to because if Fred Wilpon steps down or he passes away, that that I see that organization being put right in the hands of uh, Jeff Wilpon, and so I think we're going to get more of the same in terms of just real kind of micromanaging and um, behind the scenes calling the shots that we've seen for quite a bit over a long period of time. And at the end of the day, you know, when I look at that, I think analytics are great, but there's one timeless statistical category that defines success and it's wins and losses. You don't need the best 25 individual players in the game to win a world series. You need 25 of the best players who can perform at a high level as a team. And I think the Mets have the nucleus of some of those guys, 
but they need to be consistent and play well over a long period of time. And when it, people I'm talking about are guys like uh, uh, Michael Conforto, who I think has a lot of potential, but he's up and down. We don't know what Ahmed Rosario is going to be. Brandon Nimmo is having a really tough stretch. What are those guys going to look like over a long period of time? Um, we don't know yet. So I would give Brody Van Wagenen maybe a B minus, but as a team, the Mets, um, I would give them a D, but my expectations were not as high as maybe some other people's other Mets fans were going into the season. I kind of expected them to be right about this point at this point in the season. It, it, you bring up a lot of great points, and it'll always come back to Jeff Wilfon. But you know, we run around in circles when when it comes to the Wilfon here on the podcast, as well as just in general uh, on Twitter. Um, so, Rich, you know, I think it started with the Devin Mazzarocco move for me was the first one that I said, hmm, when it comes to moves Brody Von Wagenen has made. So, what you know, I'll, I'll pose the same question to you. What is your assessment so far, considering we are currently three games under 500 and having just gone one and five? Well, you know, some of the talent he brought in in the offseason, I was supportive of the moves, and I don't change my opinion on that. But the thing with Brody right now is, you know, he – look, they're not in a rebuilding mode, right? They're, they're clearly trying to win this year. Okay. So you have that. And then the decisions you're making have to be consistent with that. And the Mets have to start making some very tough decisions. Let's start with this one. The construct of the roster, and we've been all over this since opening day – there are some serious flaws with it. You know, you have Broxton and Lagarish. You don't need them both. They're redundant players. They're both right-handed hitters who, you know, maybe one's marginally a better hitter than the other. Who cares? They're redundant. They're defense-first guys who are, you know, fairly light-hitting, and they're both right-handed. You don't need them both. The decision to, you know, bring Darno. yes, they corrected that, but that was quite a, a head-scratcher as well. Some of the other moves they've made, like uh, not having a lefty on the bench hurt them the other night or the other day, I should say. Um, and I think it's time, you know, okay, so Brody brought in some players. I know we've talked about how the payroll didn't go up. They just moved money around. Okay. But he did bring in some players that we think will be good. Uh, it's not his fault. Wilson Ramos is in the tank, you know, but where I think Brody, he, he has to make his money now is making some tough decisions because a quarter of the way through the season, What's wrong with this roster is very apparent. They have redundancy in players. They have black holes in players. Todd Frazier right now is, is really not a major league player. His at-bats are non-competitive. Um, they have to think about that. They have to think about you know trotting uh, guys like Wilmer Font out there and, and uh, Corey Oswalt and, should I say, Jason Vargas. They have to start, if they're really all in, okay, quarter of the season's in the books, guys. They have to start making some tough, if not unpleasant, or financially difficult decisions, such as maybe it's time to cut bait with Todd Frazier. Maybe it's time to say, okay, we're paying Jason Vargas. You know what? This isn't it. We have to bring in a Kimbrel so Lugo could start. We have to bring in a Keuchel, you know, all the things we've been talking about. So really, to me, to answer your question in summary, I'm not going by what he brought here. I'm going to go by what he does at this point, 
when he has a decent body of work to choose from and to inform his decisions, let's see if he's willing and able to make those difficult decisions and start to address the glaring flaws in the roster. So I would say that, Mike, you know, Travis Darno was one of those, those first tough decisions when, you co- when it comes to the way they handle money. You know, they ate $3.5 million or whatever it was close to that uh, at the time. So, um, you know, but it's just these little moves here and there. Uh, not to say that we didn't need a qualified backup shortstop, which I think Danny Echeverria is, but, you know, and now uh, Stephen Matz goes back on, uh, goes on to the DL. Unfortunately, he couldn't uh, continue to stay uninjured, uh, which is a whole other topic I think we'll, we'll get into. But uh, they corrected the Dominic Smith issue. Um, and obviously when it comes to Keon Broxton, they probably didn't want to pull the trigger because he doesn't have any options. But even though, you know, he's not an infielder, he's an outfielder, and that was basically what they were doing with the Dominic Smith a Danny Echeverria move, uh, but it clearly was something that they got exposed over the weekend, and now they're trying to correct. So, um, you know, where, where do you go from here, and what do you think of the job he's done so far? Well, the immediate answer to your very last comment was, you know, there's being reactive and then there's being proactive. Uh, otherwise, you know, you brought up money, and in lieu of money, in lieu of spending money, BVW spent the offseason uh, negotiating in high-profile, albeit low-level prospects. That was his only recourse. If you're going to implement change, how are you going to do it? How is he going to do it? That was his only, That was, like I said, that was his only recourse because ownership was not going to increase payroll. Uh, they made that perfectly clear. So he gave it a shot, and here we are. Uh there's eight teams in the National League at or above 500. The Mets are not one of them. Uh, you know, last year they lasted 50, oh, 54 games before dropping below 500 for the first time. This year they didn't even last 33 games. On May 4th they fell below 500 for the first time all season. Last year, you know, at least they lasted until June 1st. Uh, so that's a knock against BBW's plan in the immediate. And, you know, they're coming off a 1-5 road trip. But something about that, you know, Milwaukee's been uh, kicking the Mets' posterior in for about three years now. You know, so BBW wasn't around for two of those years. And it just seems like the National League Central has always been kryptonite for the New York Mets. Uh, but the storm clouds are definitely gathering and uh, I sent uh, a summer maelstrom ahead, you know. Uh, I'd have, If we're given grades, I'd have to give him a hard C-, minus, perhaps a D+, plus, only because, you know, we only lasted 32 games before falling under 500. Uh, and, you know, the kicker in that is that the, the rest of the National League East, only the Phillies are about 500. So the Braves, ourselves, the Nationals, and, of course, the Marlins, you know, they're all under par. Uh, otherwise, what else can I say? They started the season 9-4, and four, and ever since they've been 8-16, and 16, which is to say they've been losing two-thirds of their game over the last, what, 24 games. So, you know, BBW, I asked our guest last week 
when does his bold narrative crash head on with ownership's compromised financial situation? And his answer was, well, it already has. And that's where we are. So if I thought the offseason was going to be a test of his creativity, well, then we're, just, we're about to kick that up a notch. Because as you say, this show must go on. He needs to make adjustments. He needs to make some uh transactions along the way because with every team let's not pick on the Mets uh, and BBW when it comes to the bullpen all teams that the bullpen is constantly evolving uh, we know teams don't end their season with uh, the same bullpen that they started the season with so that's going to be an ongoing situation but fact of the matter is uh, all three facets of the Mets game uh, has been underperforming, hitting, pitching, and fielding. Uh, the last time around the rotation, you know, things looked promising. All five guys put in rather stellar starts, and then, you know, this time around, we hit a pothole here and there again. So this sounds to be said for inconsistency. Was that a transient blip? We don't know. That remains to be seen. So C minus. I go back to the game after they threw behind Reed Hoskins as the the real turning point for where this season has gone. And I gave Mickey Calloway a lot of heat for that because it was uh, if this was the decision that they're getting hit a lot and they need to make a statement somehow, some way. If it wasn't just Jacob Rom making that statement, then I, you know, Mickey Calloway did a poor job for preparing his offense to make that statement because they completely fizzled the day after uh, scoring nine runs. And obviously, uh, Vincent Velasquez is a fantastic pitcher, but you have to still have some sort of of life the next day after that. And obviously, there's a lot of of talk that the heat might be uh, uh, turned up on the seats of Mickey Calloway right now, John. And so... You know, the, 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 there's a lot of different consistencies between last year and this year. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is a sophomore year now, and yet again we're seeing it all fade away rather quickly after a rather hot start. So do you think that at some point we will see manager Jim Riggleman as the manager of the Mets here? That's a great question. Um I think if it continues to go in the direction it's been going the last seven to 10 days, then um, if it's Brody Van Wagenen's call, I think we'll see a change. If there is a quote unquote collaborative decision-making process, I'm not sure Callaway's going to, uh, be gone so soon. I, 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 at this point, am up in the air. I remember it, it brings me to a thought that, you know, whether or not the Mets are in a position to still compete. And I remember, I think it was, it was about a decade ago, probably 2010, during an ESPN Sunday night broadcast, Bobby Valentine, uh, before his Red Sox days, was asked, at what point do you have a good idea of what your team is? And Valentine replied very quickly, 
45 games. If you prescribe to that theory, then the Mets have about 10 days to straighten this thing out, at least on the field. Now, that doesn't mean they have to go 9-0 and by next Sunday and sweep the next three series, but they must start winning consistently and playing consistently. Uh, as Mike said, the good news is no one's running away with the division right now. In fact, the Phillies are the only team over 500, as Mike said, and the Mets are just four and a half games back in third place and, you know, technically just four games back in the wild card race. But my greater concern isn't Callaway or Ben Wagner. I just don't think that the Mets are built to win right now. They have veterans who are not performing. Uh, Frazier, Justin Wilson has looked terrible in the bullpen. Cano has had a couple flashes of hitting well, but overall he's not hitting the way he used to hit five years ago. Uh, The youth that they have are inconsistent in their play. Rosario is having a terrible time at the plate, and now defensively, Nimmo's up and down. Alonso's been the most steady, and Michael Conforto is having his problems now. But the greatest problem I think the Mets have right now is the bench depth is just non-existent. And I don't think there's anything in the farm system at this point that can help straighten the Mets out. There's been talk about bringing up um, Carlos Gomez and, um, you know, Guillermo's been up and down. There's Dilson Herrera. He signed all these guys, Gregor Blanco, Rajay Davis. None of these guys I don't think can help the Mets in a significant way. Even when Jed Lowry does return, hopefully after this weekend, I think he's just a, a small piece. So the Mets' greatest problem is that they're just not built to win yet. I don't think they're better than a 500 team. And pitching has proved this. They have done so well, even on this road trip, uh, in the starting rotation, really holding teams to one, two, three runs, and they've only scored 15 runs in their last six games. So their pitching is great. Their starting pitching is great, but the rest of the team right now is in a real difficult position, and I don't think they have the players around them right now to get it the right mix at this point. That's my feeling. You know, I really thought that this offensive approach that they showed at the beginning of the year was sustainable, Rich, and I am being proven wrong currently, you know, as many people on Twitter will point out, but I – you know, what What would you do right now to right the ship? Uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you mentioned cutting Todd Frazier, and I think that's a, a very sound decision. Uh, but what are some of the other, you know, ideas that you can throw out there? Uh, you know, he mentioned Carl, John mentioned Carlos Gomez, and it may be a product of him outperforming the triple uh, A the, the triple-A talent that he is seeing, and maybe at this point in his career he's just a quadruple-A player, as they say. But what what would you do? Where where would you go? Well, those are tough things to do, Sam. Uh, you know, Tough calls, but let, let me give you a couple of ideas. When you look at the team right now, you have to – the thing that stands out to me, there are two things that stand out. The lack of depth in starting pitching is kind of appalling at this point. You know, you, you – 
traded for a guy, Wilmer Font, who um, his career ERA was like seven or eight or something like that. And he's a journeyman. Uh, he's been with a few teams, and he's been a long reliever, spot starter. You got this guy, bing, bang, he's starting for you the day after he arrives in San Diego. That's indicative of a problem. I mean, you're picking up a journeyman, and that's, it just reeks of desperation. So to fill that gap, uh, you know, I, I, I hate to, um, to keep going back to what everybody says, but, you know, you have to think about bringing in Dallas Keuchel. He's out there. If you're all in, this is not a rebuilding team where it doesn't make sense to add. If you're all in, as you say you are, you have to stop starting Corey Oswald, Gagneau, uh Font. You, you don't do that anymore. Bring in a quality guy who could be your fourth or fifth starter at this point, fourth or fifth starter, or bring in Kimbrell and, and put Lugo in the rotation. I know I said that before, but that's the first thing is contending teams, teams that are all in, to you know, keep using that phrase, don't do that. They don't get a Wilmer font and throw him in the rotation. It doesn't happen. So you have to address that. And then, you know, it kind of makes me laugh when people say, oh, it's Chili Davis's fault, you know, and, and his go-the-other-way problem. Let, let's go back to having all home run hitters. Well, these are the same people who last year said the all-or-nothing offense was horrible, horrible. We have to have guys who can get on base, you know. So – Granted, it's not working, but going back to having the all-or-nothing offense is absolutely not the answer. When you think about it, they have a lot of black holes, as I said earlier, in this lineup. And so what can you do realistically? Well, Rajai Davis, I just read before the show, is has an on-base percentage of about 360 with 11 stolen bases in, in Syracuse. You have to think about you have Nobody's getting on base on this damn team. So does Rajai Davis have a spot? Maybe he has to. And, okay, so whose spot does he take? Well, maybe it's time for Nimmo. I know he had a, had a hit yesterday, but Nimmo basically looks overmatched at this point. So maybe it's time to make that tough decision. This doesn't cost any money. Send Nimmo down, bring up a Rajai Davis. Yes, I know Rajai Davis is another right-handed bat, but at this point his 360 on base percentage looks like Hall of Fame statistics at this point to get him on the team. So maybe you do that. Maybe you have to make the tough call on Todd Frazier and bring in somebody who can get on base. That's Lowry's game. So we just saw that Lowry's not coming up tomorrow, but when he does come up next week, maybe you have to bite the bullet on Frazier and say, look, Lowry's a guy we have confidence can get on base. We need more offense, so we're going to go with Lowry and get rid of Frazier. Um, Those are a couple of things that, I think are those are three things that I think realistically can be done. Adding a quality arm, bring up Rajai Davis, Lowry for Frazier. Those are three things that I don't think are earth shattering. It's not some wacky trade proposal that somebody calls WFAN with. I think these are realistic things they can do in the short term that I think would get them at least get them at least jump started. You know, you'd never know uh, by the looks of your Twitter handle that you didn't like the font move, Rich, because, my God, you were just having loads of fun with these font puns, at least. <laughs> well, you have to get with the times, New Roman, on that one. Sorry. Oh, yes. <laughs> Mike, uh, you know, he brings up so many good points, and I don't think we're going to see a, a title signing, it seems like, with anybody until that, that um, the money, you know, it, it kind of makes sense, whether it's a, a, the draft pick 
or the international pool money, uh, you know, we, 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 you know, we, we like to really go to town on these types of decisions and not making, you know, if you, if, if you need to win now, just bring them in. But, you know, these are, these, it's not just the Mets who aren't bringing him in and, and getting with it, you know, who, who aren't acting desperate, if you will. So I, I don't think we're going to see his signing anywhere until at least June, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it's breaking as we speak. Who knows? But where would you go right now? Uh, you know, we've, we've, had, we've had some ideas. Do you have similar ideas, or would you throw out completely, you know, would you go the WFAN route, if you will? No, actually, my ideas are pretty tame. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm with Rich. I would just keep twi- tweaking the roster within, uh, within the organization until Memorial Day. You got to get to that first checkpoint in the season. To me, it's Memorial Day. So, as you say, Sam, just keep pushing on, pushing, and, and let's get to that, that that point and see what happens. Now, as far as Kimbrel and Keuchel, you know, they're out there. Nobody's making a move. I always say these guys become available for a reason. That said, you know, again, they're going to cost the Mets money. That's something that they're not looking to do, which is add to payroll. But they're already planting the seeds of Anthony Kay in, in, in Double A, who's pitching very well. And they always say, if you do well in Double A, that's the that's a, a it's a better indication of where your your career path is is headed more so than. Triple uh, A, where you know sometimes you get opposed by people who are just bogged down in the system. You know your switch your uh, rule five guy gets in the way. This that the other somebody on a rehab. So they say that the triple the, the double A level is more of a barometer of where somebody's headed. That being said, you know that's gonna be the Kimbrel or the Keiko move. They're gonna promote him, and then that'll add some flexibility how they can manipulate uh, Lugo into the lineup or, you know, however which way they're going to set this up. But the key to it all is still going to be, uh, you know, coming back from injury. Uh, we've got uh, Familia out, uh, Aviline is out. So, you know, there's still a lot to figure out. But Kimbrell and Keiko, again, money, that's a taboo subject with the Mets. I think they're going to go with Anthony K sometime, you know, in midsummer, if he continues to perform the way he's been, that's going to be their answer. It's going to be from within. Uh, otherwise, you know, Brody's negotiate, negotiated away pretty much any, you know, uh, tired of prospect we had in the system away to this point. There's not many left that he can play with. This guy's one. I wouldn't put it past him to trade him as well. Uh, hopefully he doesn't. John, you know, the, the the Lowry move is going to be interesting to see how they shuffle that around. I really like what they said. I mean, it, it is rather early to see the Mets getting rid of Todd Frazier, especially with them, you know, talking about the defense and the, what he's provided, why he's gotten starts over J.D. Davis. But at this point, can you justify sending J.D. Davis down, whatever the move is, if J.D. Davis goes down, kind of similar to Dominic Smith. I mean, he's been rather consistent, if not on the defensive end of, of things. What would you do when Jed Lowry returns? 
When Jed Lowry returns, I think probably the best move would to be to send Hechevarria back down and mix and match on that left side of the infield because the Mets do have a defensive problem right now with Rosario. And so they're going to have to mix and match. Can Lowry play some shortstop? Can he play third base? Um, can Frazier come off the bench and give them an extra bat? He's certainly a decent clubhouse guy. Uh, how much can he give them? How much is left in the tank? That remains to be seen. I think Hechevarria is one of those 4A players, and I don't think the Mets have anything down on the farm to really um, – kind of balance that once Lowry comes back you're probably going to have to make a move with Hechevarria yeah I do think that that's probably uh, a sound move one way or the other you know it, he's the kind of player that like has been batting 247 the majority of his career which turns into 161 on the New York Mets that, that's just how it seems to happen um you know, it's same thing with like Wilson Ramos right now. It's just like, can we can we get a little consistency once you get to the New York Mets? And we could go around in circles with whether or not City Field has anything to do with it. As, as uh, I, I forget who wrote the article at the beginning of the year, but I believe it was the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and whoever I send it to next, I believe it'll be Rich. But correct me if I'm wrong that it was, wasn't the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about how. City Field has been the worst home team, home ballpark in the majors over the last few years. But um, I, I, I let's go to something positive real quick. Somebody that we don't seem to have to worry about um, right now, and and we can get into Pete Alonso shortly. But I want to talk about Jeff McNeil, who it just keeps getting better and better. It seems, Rich. Uh, you know. He's just – everybody likes to, to go with the cliche that he's a throwback player. But, you know, we, we always talk about how we don't like these guys playing out of position. But on top of, uh, you know, consistently putting the ball in play and keeping that average rather high, even as, as it started dipping a little bit, uh, he seems to be getting better out there in, in the outfield. And, and he was very disappointed with himself the other day the fact that he couldn't rob a home run in the first row. He's just, he, he, he just seems to be that kind of player you want to root for on your team. You want these types of players. And, and it's like the John Stern types, the John Stern's types that, that you wish there were more of on your team. Yeah, I mean, McNeil is homegrown, obviously, homegrown talent. Um, looking at his numbers here, 433 on base percentage is absolutely off the charts good. Uh, to go along with a 356 batting average, which is off the charts good as well. But you know, there's a reason that we like guys like that. Yeah, you know, maybe it's a throwback thing. Maybe not. Who cares about that? As far as I'm concerned. But the guy gets on base. He he does what he has to do. And and I think he stands out on this team in particular because of that on base percentage. And it, it's uh, a, he's so unlike the rest of the team. Look at some of these other on base percentages. Wilson Ramos, 295, just throw a couple out there. Rosario, 315. Lagaris, 282. Those are putrid on base percentages. And here, here comes McNeil with, you know, getting on base 43% of the time. And, and that's to my previous point. You know, they need more players like that 
because they have to start doing something. They have to start generating some offense, and you generate offense by getting on base, and McNeil does that. And then to add to it, Sam, to your, your previous point about the spunk and the grit and the, you know, I'll run through a brick wall to do anything to win a game thing, the fans love that. You know, you're right. He, he didn't rob a home run. I think it was yesterday. And he was mad. And, and that's great. And when he – did you see the way he uh, ground ball the second in the shift? And he beat it the other night. He just absolutely flat-out beat it to first base. He's not blessed with Keon Broxton's speed, but he does bring everything he has to everything he does. And, um, yeah, and he's the kind of guy that you wish you had a team full of, but unfortunately the Mets don't. Yeah, um, I'll shift over back to the uh, the other person I mentioned, Mike, Pete Alonzo. Um, you know, I thought that he, he has taken on quite the leadership role with this team, and he seems to be adjusting back to the league, adjusting to him. Now, obviously, he had a, a um, you know, along with the Mets themselves, they couldn't follow up the, the come-from-behind win from the night before that – felt like it's just one of those games that you have to follow up the next day by winning the series. And unfortunately, he had a couple strikeouts. But but other than that, you know, he he seems to be taking the leadership role, bull, uh, you know, bull by the horns. And I, I'm, I'm very impressed with him, and he's quickly becoming one of my favorite players on the team. You're right. And he seems to be taking this upon himself. It seems to be organic. I don't think it's anything contrived. I noticed maybe about two weeks ago, uh, it was an outing. Uh, Jerry Jerry is familiar with that on the mound. He ran into a little trouble. He pitched out of it. And Alonzo came and gave him a chest bump uh, just to pick him up. And then obviously with things he said over the last couple of days, the, the drama that went down in San Diego with their rookie phenom, uh, although he didn't do well that particular game, he came back the next game and he just, you know, put a baseball into orbit. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to talk, you have to back it up. And he's certainly doing that. Uh, I would say he needs a little bit more polish with the media. He doesn't seem terribly comfortable, but at least he's confident and he's trying. Uh you know, but that said, the fact that he is, in fact, being thrust into this role and he seems to be accepting it, I think that's problematic of Robinson Cano because he was the headline acquisition of the offseason. And if anyone's going to come to Brody Van Wagen's rescue, it has to be him, i.e. Robinson Cano. But cycling back to Peter Alonzo, uh, as Rich said, you know, the game of adjustments is on. He came out, uh, you know, like wildfire. Pitchers seemed to make some adjustments. Alonzo suffered a little lull in production, and now he seems to be uh, picking it up again. Uh, you look at these numbers that he's posting now, you compare them to what he did in Las Vegas, and then a double A, and throughout his career, really, because, you know, I get first glimpse of these guys in Brooklyn for the Cyclones. Uh, and he's pretty. He's he's staying consist, consistent throughout. Uh, so it is what it is. I mean, if he can continue growing into this role uh, w- without 
any undue pressure on, on what is, after all, a rookie. And if he seems comfortable in his own shoes, by all means, continue forward and see if you can, in fact, you know, get this team's attention and, and you know, get them all singing on the same page of music, so to say. Uh, but that said, I, I can't help but point my finger back at Cano. He's the one, if anyone, who needs, by 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 sheer responsibility because who he is and what resume he has behind him, he's the one who needs to step above and beyond what uh, what Alonzo can do and, and, and take charge of this organization. That was the headline move. And unfortunately, money changes everything. And, and you know, sometimes we forget that Alonzo's a rookie. And he will have a bad stretch this year, a very bad stretch. I'm sure of it. Let's see how he reacts then, and let's see how Cano responds in turn. I, I think this is somewhat of a symbiotic relationship. One is going to help the other, but Cano needs to lead the way. All the pressure cannot fall on Alonzo's shoulders for as much as he seems to be willing to take it on. I'm worried about that. But for the moment, he's pressing on and he's performing, and his his actions are backing up his words. John, Cano, McNeil, Alonzo. Let's go with all of those, and we'll start with Cano. Um, I, I think that, you know, he, he had made some strides, but then got to 2499 in terms of hits. I think that the 2500 hit was kind of dogging him, and it was a really important thing for him, especially, and of course, you know, since I'm driving, I don't have the numbers in front of me, in terms of what that means as his Dominican legacy. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm personally not worried about Cano uh, because I think he has a track record of starting up slow and heating up. And, you know, he finally got that 2,500 hit. Uh, I think he's going to come around, but where where are you on, on Cano? And you can follow it up with your opinions about McNeil and Alonzo as well. Yeah, I I think Cano will come around. Will he be the kind of player that he was uh, from 2010 to 2014 when he was an all-star and hitting over 300 and hitting, I, I would say, about an average of 30 home runs a year and knocking in 100 runs? I don't think... I don't think we're going to see that Robinson Cano again. I think um, age being 36, uh, injury, and uh, that past um, is going to affect him long-term playing over the long haul of a season. Can he be more productive than he is right now? Absolutely. Can he help the Mets turn the corner? Uh, Like Mike said, yeah, I, I think absolutely he can be a part of that. Um, it would be great uh, just throwing in a wild card here if Ioannis Cespedes could get back on the field to see those two guys one right after the other in the lineup and how they could feed off each other and then add Alonzo to that mix and kind of package those three up. That could become a real affordable uh, middle of that lineup. So, yeah, I I think Cano can turn it around. Um, I hope he does, and I hope I'm wrong. But uh, we'll see once we get into the dog days of summer in July and August if he can really turn that up. Uh, secondly, McNeil, 
going back to my kind of my history roots right here, he reminds me so much of a guy like Wally Backman on the 86 team. He's one of those grinders. He's a guy who doesn't mind getting dirty, uh, hits for excellent uh, on-base percentage, um, excellent average, great all-around player, and I just love his character on and off the field. And he's more of a veteran presence than some might assume just because of his short history in the major leagues. He's 27 years old. He's been around the game for quite a while. And uh, he I don't know who taught him how to hit, but they need to get him, whoever that is, into the organization and maybe replace Chili Davis. But <laughs> if we could have a couple guys hitting in that 370, 380 uh, range of on-base percentage, um, at the top of the lineup, the Mets could certainly score some more runs in that area. So um, those two guys, yeah, um, you know, they, they're, they're going to be counted on to make the difference in the coming days if the Mets are going to turn this thing around and get back going in the right direction. You know, um, it's funny you mentioned Wally Backman, and I'm going to go on a complete tangent you having said that name. Uh, Rich, I think the answer is no. But is there any way, you know, with him right out, uh, you know, a few exits down the highway, uh, you know, managing the Long Island Ducks, it seemed like the the biggest clash with Wally Backman in the the Mets organization was Sandy Alderson. And Sandy Alderson uh, is no longer a part of the organization, or or at least a, a very very minimal role, because um, I do believe he he might still slightly be like a, a an advisor or something of that role of that nature. Uh, but anyway, um, you know he's still trying to to battle to be a major league manager that doesn't seem to be coming. But could there possibly be a segue? And again. I'm pretty sure the answer is no, but we're having fun here. Wally Backman, what say you, Rich? I say no. I, I think um, because of his past, you know, his checkered past, some of the off-field stuff and that kind of thing, I, I, I don't see the Wilpons. Even though, yeah, you're right, Sandy Alderson was the biggest um, obstructionist, I would say, to bringing Wally back to the organization. I don't think the Wilpons are fans either. And I think bringing Wally in would would be while the fans would love it, it there would be a subset would be like you know the guys had off the field issues. What do you want to bring this guy in for? Uh, you know we're all about family friendliness and all that kind of thing. And, and let's face it, Wally um, is a bit rough around the edges. So I, I don't see him being a Wilpon guy either. And I think um, Wally is is pretty much at least in my opinion a non-entity with the mess at this point. You know, we're talking about how much Jeff Wilpon has a say in this organization, Mike. He's the one who brought Wally Backman back to profet to to the the ranks of the major and minor leagues. Uh, so, again, I have to agree with Rich, but I'm still having fun with this one. What say you, considering Sandy Alderson is not the obstructionist there anymore? Well, he definitely was. Uh, stranger things have happened. I think Wally Backman uh, possesses one of the more cunning minds in in all of baseball, uh, manager-wise. 
And, you know, who knows what the future may bring. Now, he's working for a gentleman named Michael Sapp, who, you know, not only runs the Ducks, but runs the entire Atlantic League. So this guy is by no stretch of the imagination uh, an amateur in what he does. He's a a very well-respected person, and after all, MLB and the Atlantic League have uh, formed an agreement to, you know, test case a a lot of rules that MLB is looking to implement. But at the same time, the Atlantic League has been a long time uh, uh, feat of mercenaries, so to say. You know, a lot of guys going to the Atlantic League looking to reestablish themselves and wind up getting back into affiliated baseball, due in part because of their performance in, in the circuit. So managers are no different. And here's Wally Backman, and he's being put in a, a, a somewhat, okay, locally speaking, uh, a, a position of, of, of profile. Because uh, the Atlantic League is, is known, locally at least, and, and what happens, especially with the Ducks, is chronicled and followed. And it, it's, it's news, and, and people are aware of it. So if he's continuing to follow a dream, uh, he has my support. Again, I think he has one of the more cunning minds in baseball. Uh, so we'll see how he performs. As Rich says, there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage there, and he has to prove once and for all that they're not going to constantly be uh, toted around all the time. Uh, that he can actually compose himself, especially in this day and age with replay, and you know to what extent they can and can argue with umpires over. Uh, things uh, and whatever the case may be, I, I have hope for him. I know it's a fantasy; it's never going to come true. But uh, I, I've always thought that uh, Wally Backman in a Met uniform in the dugout, piloting, piloting them, would have been grand. Uh, I think it would have inspired uh, gentlemen, you know, such as ourselves, our age. I'm in my fifties, rich, uh, John. You know, I, I think that would have been worth a couple of walk-ups just to see him come out, you know, in, in the spring and fall jacket all buttoned up coming out to make a pitching change. I think that would have sent chills up our spine uh, at one point. Maybe not today, but that's what I, I, I once thought. Uh, and who knows? Like I said, stranger things have happened. Ex Jack McKeon. <laughs> right, exactly, and, and we'll we'll finish with you, John. Before looping back to, uh, before we, we I'll, I'll ask one more question before we get to our historical uh, segment of the podcast. But uh, before we we loop back around, let's still play uh play fantasy. What say you about the uh, the Wally Backman question? I, I don't see him back at in Flushing or Queens or. Uh, in, in a Mets uniform. Um, and I think his greatest issue is his off the field transgressions. Although it may be behind him, he still does have a tendency to explode, um, you know, on the playing field and, and go into these tantrums and in, in minor league baseball, to some degree, there's, there's, um, there's almost this, uh, circus like atmosphere, especially around, you know, teams like the Long Island Ducks and some of these guys trying to get one last crack at it. And I think he's 
probably where he's going to end up being for a long time. He reminds me more of a Billy Martin than a Davy Johnson, and even to some degree a Bobby Valentine who speaks his mind off the field. And if you're winning, you can get away with it. Once that turns to losing and tough seasons, you saw what that did to Valentine, and he was eventually gone. He's a great baseball mind. But if I may throw out one more name is just since we're going around the loop, let's bring in Lenny Dykstra and have him match. (laughs) (laughs) Just No, just a wild kind of crazy thought. <laughs> well, so, uh, I'm gonna. No, go ahead, John. Sorry. No, I was just. I I didn't want to go any farther than the Dykstra. I wanted to see the reaction in the room. I think Rich has passed out. I don't even think he's alive anymore. <laughs> no, I'm here. I smiled. I, I Lenny is. Uh, Len, Lenny makes Wally look like a choir boy. Uh, yeah, yeah, he does. Oh my God, that guy's right. got more problems right now than a math book. <laughs> I mean, hey, you know, Lenny Lenny follows me, uh, which is which is like crazy, but then again, maybe not too crazy because that's just what he does. He's he's way out there on on social media and in real life, and and uh, you know, I, I I I think we'll stop there with uh, what what we could say about Lenny, uh, especially this year with him clashing against Ron Darling, who to throw this out there, uh, you know. We, we wish the best in his fight against thyroid cancer. I uh, have to mention that. That's uh, uh, sad news, but it's also sounds like it's, it's curable and treatable. Uh, so best of luck, Ron, uh, to, to you out there. And, and I, I'm sure everybody in the room echoes that. And uh, before, like I said, before we get to the, the history segment, I'm going to loop back around to McNeil. John, I'm going to go with you again first. Uh, uh, he's been getting – you know, the, the uh, leadoff position, and they've been doing it with Ahmed Rosario following him. Now, I think it, it's been a tandem that's worked well, and there are talks about when Jed Lowry comes back, he's most likely going to be in the number two hole. Now, mind you, you really can't necessarily argue against trying something different, even though I think it's been, at least in the first inning, it's been working wonders, but... but um. You know, what what say you about that? I, I don't think, at least with uh, uh, McNeil specifically, you got to leave him there as the leadoff hitter of this team. I, I agree. His on-base percentage is off the charts. His ability to get on base and and get guys going and get a rally started early and get the Mets going in the right direction, I don't think you can move McNeil at all. He's right in the right place. Rosario, on the other hand, um, I think he needs to be more of a consistent hitter over a long period of time and really show that he can produce at the plate to leave him at the top of the lineup. Uh, I think when he when he's going well, he looks fantastic. But then there are times where, you know, just recently, he just looks like he's really struggling. And I don't know what the answer to that is. Moving Jed Lowry into that number two hole, coming off, the injured list, I don't know if he belongs right there at the top of the lineup immediately. I think he probably needs to get his uh, legs under him and, and get his timing down, and he may turn out to be a great number two hitter. But, um, yes, McNeil at the top of the lineup, number two, I'm not sure who it should be yet. You know, Rich, 
I think he brings up a good point in terms of uh, Lowry not going there right out of the I.L., uh, but going to Rosario, you know, you're starting to see him come around with the bat. It's just that he's got double digits and errors already. And we've talked about it on this on this uh, uh, podcast before about how we can't believe how uh, rough it's been out there for him uh, defensively. Uh, but, you know, if we're staying positive and staying optimistic, it's nice to see that his bat's finally come around. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, Rosario's bat – hasn't been the problem Rosario as a uh, as a defender you know clearly it has to be in his head at this point um he's a talented defender who is just he's having a lot of problems you know, he he's struggling on on throws and he's you know struggling on on balls hit at him um hard to explain you know how you know these guys you can understand look he's still adjusting to major league pitching he's only been in the, in the big leagues less than 2 years so if it were the case that his offense were the problem you would understand that defense pretty much is the same no matter whether you're in single a or the major leagues and he's just having such a dreadful time of it in the field you know offensively though i i think while we are giving him kudos well deserved 279 average um his on-base percentage is still only 315. You know, the delta between the two is very small. He's not walking at all. And when you're a top-of-the-order hitter, which he's been, as we talked about, you know, the number two hole, you need better than that. You know, you need to be on base more than at a 315 clip. So he's making strides. I'm not trying to take that away from him. But the Mets do need a little bit more from him in terms of getting on base. And the whole defensive thing, like I've said, it's clearly, I mean, it balls at him, you know, and it's, I think we all held our breath on the, on the last out Tuesday night. Cause at this point, any ball hit to him is an adventure. And, um, and you wonder why that is. And again, the only thing I could think of is something's gotten in his head and he's his own worst enemy, which, you know, my, my last point on that will be, you have to have, in my opinion, someone who can play the position as a backup. And I, I happen to be a fan of Hechevarria. I think he's an ideal backup infielder. He could basically play all over the diamond. Um, and if Rosario is in one of those modes where, you know, he's his own worst enemy, as I said, give him a mental day off, and, and you have to be able to plug that hole with a major league, at least a major league quality defender. So personally, I'd like to see Hechevarria stay on the team. I get that he's not hitting much. He never has. But um, – but he does give the opportunity to Rosario to sit when necessary, and it's been necessary a lot lately, and they haven't done it. You know, and, and what he just said about it, uh, Mike, leads me to think about how it, it, it's just how much of, of uh, a hole in this team Todd Frazier is currently. Obviously, we're talking about how good he is in the clubhouse, but that does if he's hitting 154 or whatever he currently is, it's just such it's just such a, a black hole for this this team. No matter what he can give uh, in the clubhouse, but but going with Rosario, um, you know he's he. I know it's a short sample size, but he started to look a little sharper the other day defensively. But obviously, it doesn't make up for the fact that he has about 10 errors already. Um, and and going to what he said about Danny Echeverria, you know, I, I think he, he makes a point that you you need to have the proper shortstop to spell Rosario from time to time. Uh, run with it wherever you want to go, Mike. I'll take it in reverse order. I like being strong up the middle. 
Therefore, third base is less important to me, and that gets back to Frazier. Uh, quite frankly, I believe his leadership is overrated. I don't think this team requires his brand of leadership. I really don't. Uh, as far as his offense production, what offensive production? Uh, the guys are right now an automatic out, and you know what? I've never been impressed uh, throughout his career with his numbers or his production. Uh, for that matter. Uh, and defensively, yeah, he offers that. Now, if he wants to sit, sit around on the bench, you know, and be a defensive replacement and a pinch hitter, that's fine if he'll accept that role. But now you get back to this issue of redundancy. What do you do with J.D. Davis? And, and as you say, we still have McNeil, and we've got to make room for all these guys. So, you know, cutting Frazier is probably addition by subtraction, really. Uh Otherwise, no one else is really distinguishing themselves, and I'll keep going in reverse order back to Rosario. You know, to me, the second spot in the order is, is very, very key. I, to me, that's, if not the most important position in the lineup for me personally, the second most important position for me. Uh, it allows you, depending on who you slot there, the ability to either pounce early or are you protecting someone and, and trying to get them better pitches and, and trying to get them off the snides. So it, it's a very it, it's a very flexible spot in the order, and, and if you use it correctly, it can work to your advantage. Uh, and then we'll get back to the top of this thing, Jeff McNeil. Uh, Rich and, and, and John, for that matter, I think you'll agree with me. He reminds me of Lance Johnson. Never saw a pitch he never wanted to swing at. And all he does is make contact, and he's doing it well. The numbers speak for himself. Uh, he He's just that, you know, uh, just all effort. And uh, at some point in his life, he must have been told, son, somebody out there is willing to outwork you. So, you know, approach your craft cap carefully. So I think I covered everything for you, uh, Sam, in reverse order. No, you uh, you hit it spot on, and I think that uh, brings us to our next segment of the podcast. I, I, we we could talk uh, nonstop about the 2019 New York Mets, but I think it's time for the 2019 New York Mets to respond to us. And uh, without further ado, let's bring on the next uh, uh, part of our podcast, which is the, the history part of our podcast. And I'd like to first go uh, back – Real quick, uh, because we weren't able to cover the uh, 1924 season, and I'm not going to harp on it too long, uh, either the 1924 or 1925. Uh, For those of you who uh, don't know, we like to basically not only correlate the episode number with the uniform number in Mets history, but if there isn't a year that we can go to, we like to briefly talk about the National League legacy of 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 the old teams that that are the re- you know them leaving are the reason why the New York Mets exist now. And what's interesting, real quick, about the 1924 Brooklyn Robins is that they finished second that year uh, in the pennant race uh, with a nine with 92 wins, which was unheard of for the Brooklyn Dodgers at the time, who were then known as the Robins because of Wilbert Robinson, their manager. Uh, but in 1925, they were right back at it with 85 losses, only 65 wins, finishing in their usual place of six. They 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 
they kind of uh, were paying rent for the, uh, the sixth place of National League at the time. And the 1924 New York Giants won the pennant that year. And, Mike, do you know who won the World Series that year? I, I didn't go that deep, unfortunately.
kind of in a nutshell, those three twenty fives stick out to me uh, the most. You know, Rich, um, I I'm looking at it, and it's just like, you know, at the time in 1999, Bobby Bonilla wasn't necessarily like like the, you know thought well by Met fans, and and it still boggles my mind that they. They brought him back. You know, he had two go-rounds with this team. And even the second one, you know, was the infamous card-playing game in game six uh, with Ricky Henderson. So uh, on top of talking about your your favorites from this list, what you know, comment on that. What, what were they thinking? Well, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious they were thinking. Think about 1999. The Mets were – in the playoff hunt, obviously, they won the wild card. And like a lot of teams would, what they did was they went and they tried to add a veteran bat on the bench. Uh, Vinny is a switch hitter. So they figured, you know, he if you take out the history and take out the contract and, and his first go-around, Benia at that point of his career was a good guy to add. He profiles well. You know, um, he profiles as the kind of a guy that teams in the playoff hunt would add late in the season. You get a two-for-one pinch hitter because he's a switch hitter, got some pop. And he, could, he, at that point, was mostly an infielder. He could play some first base and you know, play third in an absolute emergency. So to answer your question, that's what I think they were thinking um, in bringing back Benia at that point. You know, I think it was just more of a um, – you, know, you take the history out, and, and it does make some sense from a baseball perspective to add a guy like that. But in terms of the 25s, um, I'm going to go with two guys here. The first one is a guy that um, I really, really liked as a young Met fan, and that would be Don Hahn. Um, John and Mike, you probably remember Don as well as I do. Um, here was a guy who maybe you know was right up there with Reyes in terms of the fastest foot speed met ever to put on the uniform Don Hahn could absolutely fly he was an outstanding defensive outfielder but my goodness he could not hit um you know when you look at some of his numbers for the Mets his his batting averages real quickly 236 162 229 and then a robust 251 so Hahn was not much of a hitter um great defensive player uh you know equally equally great on the bases when he could get on base. Uh, but I always kind of liked him. He was one of those guys that, you know, because I value speed and defense so much in baseball, he worked for me. Uh, and I tolerated his lack of offense to get those those attributes of his game. And then the other one I'll go to is Del Unser. Um, Del Unser was your classic good, solid, not great, never was going to be great, never was, but solid, solid ball player. You know, for the Mets in 1975, he hit 294. Um, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm 99% sure he came over in the uh, the Tug McGraw deal with the Phillies, and I think that kind of cast a bad light on him with Met fans right off, right out of the chute uh, because Tug was so beloved. But Del Unser was one of those guys. No one aspect of his game was great, but no real flaws either. Solid defender. Average speed, you know, a little bit of pop, not too much. Good left-handed bat, you know, just a good workman-like player. 
uh, and at a time when, you know, the Mets were starved for offense in the mid-'70s when they had the great pitching, but absolutely no offense whatsoever. Del Unser was actually one of their better offensive players. So those are my two number 25s. Uh, Mike, you know, there's there's a lot of players on this list. Who jumps out to you? Uh, I'm going to start with Frank Thomas. Let's give kudos to him for being the Mets. Mets' first ever bona fide slugger back in 1962. He had over 30 home runs for them. So, uh, kudos to him. I will pass forward to Amos Otis. Uh, I'm covering the 69 Mets on, on my blog, just doing a daily uh, summary of their games, game by game, uh, throughout the season. And he's about to be traded. But in the meantime, he's been subbing for an, uh, an injured Tommy Agee in 1969. But uh, if anyone remembers back in the 70s, uh, Amos Otis went on to have a very fine career with the Kansas City Royals. Moving up the list, I have to agree with Rich. You know, Dale Unser is one of these guys. Him and Tug McGraw share a very uh, unique relationship with both Mets and Phillies fans. Obviously, McGraw, uh, for for obvious reason, championship reason. Uh, Dale Unser, he, he, you know, you ask a Philly fan, they love Dale Unser as well. Uh, Willie Martinez was classic. His home run trot, uh, that that was entertainment back in the day, you know, and it was a little bit out of place for those unwritten rules. Uh, but today he would be a smash with this home run trot. Uh, Keith Miller, what, is not Keith Miller uh, the, the first, who should I say, uh, Rich, help me on this one. Keith Miller was the genesis of, you know, uh, the next uh, – who am I thinking of? You know, the – He was like – he he, I, he took I over for he, Dykstra and Backman. Yeah, is that what you mean, Mike? He was the leadoff hitter, you know, moved around the infield, uh, played some outfield. Yeah, he was kind of, I guess, the Jeff McNeil who never turned into a Jeff McNeil, but they kind of forced that upon him. They, You know, because Dow Strawberry had left and, you know – they turned to us and said, no, Keith Mill is going to solve all our problems. At least that's the way uh, I interpreted things. Of course, Bill, Puss- Bill Pulsifer is on this list. Even though, you know, 2000, he wore the number 25. He, he's remembered for uh, the fizzled out Generation K. Alex Escobar, one of the most overrated prospects ever. Uh, this organization is, is known for overrating their prospects. And if there's anybody else, you know what? Pedro Feliciano, I'll leave to you, Sam. Well, I, you know, I was definitely thinking about Pedro Feliciano. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure he, I, if, if he doesn't still own, like, the record for most appearances, then he's definitely quite up there uh, with the New York Mets uh, for appearances. And, and um, yeah, Bill, you know, we got, we got a Generation K on here. Uh, I was thinking Frank Thomas and, and – um, Correct me if I'm wrong, John, but I think you, you posted something about Frank recently, didn't you? Uh, Thomas, who played three years with the Mets, led the franchise in home runs until uh, 1975 when Dave Kingman surpassed him. And he led the franchise also in, in RBIs until 1970 until he was passed by Tommy Agee. So, you know, in those early Mets days when winning was uh, few and far between, he was one of those guys that really uh, was a bright spot on the Mets team. So, yeah, Frank, is he's still with us, thank goodness, too, as well. 
And I'll finish up the 25 conversation with Jay Payton. My memory about Jay Payton is that Pac Bell Chevron advertisement of a catch. He, he made quite the catch against the wall, uh, and I believe it was the cartoon Chevron car that he made it right up against that. And, and that's what I remember about Jay Payton. It, it's, uh, uh, you know, I, I thought he, he was – he was um, certainly a, a fun player in those those late 90s, uh, 2000 team uh, for the uh, the New York Mets. And and I, I, Rich, I totally understand what you're saying about Bobby Bonilla, uh, but Bobby Bonilla be Bobby Bonilla, and and that was that was uh, you know unfortunately the way it turned out. And, and I'll I'll finish up with uh, probably the best Met on this list, uh, Chin. Lung Hu, uh, we all, and obviously I'm joking, but uh, it, it's it's funny to think that there was a press conference for this guy, guys. Uh, but but yeah, that that wraps up uh, our uh, our 25 segment, and uh, we always end with our last word before we uh, we go. And, and but before we do the last word, uh, I'm going to go to John. First of all, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I I uh, am thrilled that we could get you on and, and again keep doing what you're doing. And before we uh, we wrap it up with the last word, if you got any shameless plugs, have at it. We love shameless plugs on this podcast. Yeah, no shameless plug from for me other than just um, uh, visit us and follow us uh, on Mets Rewind on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, we love the conversation. We love the fan interaction and the feedback. Um, excited to see how the Mets uh, perform over the next couple weeks. I think they can really do some some damage playing the Marlins twice and uh, and uh, collecting some wins there. So we'll see what happens. But Rich, Mike, Sam, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been a blast, and uh, love your perspective. Love this podcast. And um, I look forward to connecting with you online. Thank you so much, John. And uh, go ahead and, and take us home with your last word. My last word would be simple. Three words. Let's go, Matt. Yeah, nice. Nice. Uh, uh, Rich, how about you? Uh, my last word would be frustration. I, I think the past uh, week or so, 10 days, have been incredibly frustrating for the Mets, and I think that needs to end. And I think we talked about, at least we gave our opinions on how that needs to end, some of the moves that are, you know, we all had some ideas on some realistic things they could do. But whatever it is they do, the, the, the frustration, I, I think the fan base is, is really over-the-top frustrated, as I am, and I'd love to see this frustration come to an end. How about you, Mike? Spotlight. Uh, I'm deciding to put the spotlight squarely in Robinson Cano for whatever reason. It's just my mood. Uh, throughout his career, he's averaged 86 strikeouts per season. That's good. That's really good. Right now, he's on the pace to strike out 150 times. That's bad. That's very bad. So I'm putting the spotlight on him. Like I said, he's the headline, so I'm making this an issue. If anyone needs to step up and lead this team, offensively speaking, it's got to be him. 
and not Alonzo alone. Otherwise, you know, we're going to change the narrative come summertime. Yeah, and my last word, last phrase is going to be quoting uh, James Brown. Time is running out fast. I know it's only May, but when it comes to this team and it comes to the way they they need to answer the calling, uh, it, it, it's it's time to to put up or shut up with uh, with the way they they the track record of. Two, two years in a row that they win, and then six years in a row of losing. They they need to figure something out, some sort of consistency, somehow, some way, and they have to do it soon. Uh, otherwise, you know, we at the stadium need to start to sell the team chance. Don't know why it hasn't come around before, and I don't know why. To tangent, real quick, nobody's done that with uh, James Dolan of the New York Knicks, but. Uh, you know, uh, outside of changing over sports, I think that it's time that they got some consistency here. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they need to stop going through the same start strong, whimper by May. That's just the bottom line. So figure it out, figure some consistency out as a, a, an organization, as a corporate entity. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll love you forever. That's the bottom line. Well, anyway, thank you all so much. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And uh, we can't finish without saying, Rich. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets, everybody. Take care. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Right, bye, everyone. Now.